Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Amanda Gillis Furutaka, professor of English at Kyoto Sangyo University. Dr. Gillis Furutaka, how are you? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. Surviving the coronavirus pandemic. Um, not sure how well I'm surviving online teaching.、Uh, <laughs> as you'll find out during the course of this interview, it has、um, blocked one of my research projects for this year.、Um, so, classroom research is kind of out of the question, or it has to take a very different focus. But we're all in the same situation. So, I guess I'm lucky in doing well. Yeah, same with me. My, my research has been postponed mostly because, well, I mean, Classes have gone online, but Macquarie University, where I'm doing my PhD, they've paused all face to face data collections. Right. And even if Japan decides to go back, they would they still would have the power to, to shut me down.、So、right. The, their、mm-hmm. policy is whatever, whichever has the strongest policy. So even,、mm. if, even if we go back on campus in September, they still could shut it down. Right. If, if their on campus policy hasn't changed. So. Right. Yeah, I guess a lot of professors are kind of in this wait and see. Research is on hold, yes.、Mm. Yeah. Well,、um, today's, today's article is making a lecture course student centered steps and issues. And this is something that you presented on, was this last JALT International? Yes, in, it was last、uh, November? November last year. Yes. And this is so- it seems like a、oh, it、yeah. seems like a different era, doesn't it? In the days when we were giving live presentations in person, yeah. Yeah, it's funny when I I look on YouTube sometimes for a variety of different things, and whenever I see crowds together, I think, oh, remember that? Yes. Remember when we could all gather? <laughs> yeah, and no one's wearing a face mask. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. It is very very interesting. Well, this 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 is a very interesting article to me because it involved action research. I remember、yes. when I was doing my master's in education, the whole concept of action research was quite new to me. And then once I realized what it was, I thought, wow, this is incredible. I almost had the idea when I first heard about action research are we allowed to do this?、Um, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Uh, what's what's your what's your well, take my, on action research? My reaction research? is why isn't everyone doing this all the time? You know, <laughs> yeah, we do need to do it. We do need to be very aware of what is and isn't working in our classroom and investigating why it is or isn't working. What what do you think are the parameters for action research? Now, in the article, you did mention that you you received approval from your ethics committee. When,、mm-hmm. I, when I did my action research for my master's, it was, it was under the constraints of my master's program, and I had a clear idea what I wanted to do. But I didn't,、mm. get, I didn't necessarily get permission from anyone. I mean, I was collecting surveys and I was monitoring my own teaching practices. What,、mm. what's, your, what's your view on that?、Uh, I know you, you, like I said, you mentioned that you had to get ethics approval. Do you always need to get ethics approval when you do action research? Well, it depends very much on the institution. And what you're researching, how you're researching it, and、um, you do, in whatever circumstances, you have to get the agreement of the students who are involved, your,、mm-hmm. your subjects, research subjects. So I think that、um, it's important to think about these things and、um, to explain to your students that you are going to be researching this particular aspect of the lesson. and、um, That they should be made aware of it and able to opt out if they don't agree. Well, before because, we get. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, go、mm-hmm. ahead. Sorry.、Oh, go ahead. Well, because、um, as I said, it does depend what you're researching, though.、Um, you know, it, I wanted to collect、uh, copies of their work、um, so that I could compare from one year to the next whether they were、um, writing at a different level of um, understanding. Um, And interest、um, from one year to the next as I was gradually shifting it to a more student centered approach.、Um, and of course,、uh, students write assignments on the expectation the teacher is going to read it once and give it a grade and then probably never look at it again. But they're not usually thinking that the teacher is going to be making a copy and perhaps using this in a future publication anonymously. But anyway, it's their work. And、um, 
if we are going to be using it, we need to ask their permission to use it because it's not ours, it's theirs. Right. So when, when I did my action research, I definitely asked permission <laughs> from the students, mm. but I didn't ask permission from anybody else. And I, and, I see. And, and at that time, I when I was doing my master's, I was learning about action research and there wasn't mm. a whole a whole lot of guidelines about what you know okay. it was just it was just it was just a survey and i and i definitely asked my students permission if they if they'd be willing to take part in the survey it's totally optional they they don't have to do it if they decide to do it they could drop out at any time i sort of gave them that but when i right. i didn't get anyone's approval to start the survey and that actually turned out to be uh, a publication later on but at mm. that time i wasn't a full-time employee anywhere yet i was i was a part-time right. contractor and i didn't mm. feel the need to ask anyone's permission to start the study but i did get mm. i did get student permission um was that okay i was just kind of i was just thinking about that today as i was reading through well it's kind of on the edge of okay because in recent years the rules have tightened considerably and um if you're working full-time in a university in japan and i Yes, definitely. If you're working full time um, each year, we have to um, sort of go through this Monkasho mandated kind of um, survey. Um, so checking that we are aware of all of the um, rules about research and research ethics and um, and then we ha we definitely at my university have to consult with the research ethics um, center and submit an application if we are going to be surveying the students for any reason, um, filming them, photographing them for research purposes. So I think the times have changed. Certainly awareness of the rights of subjects or participants in research um, is uh, far greater than it used to be. Do you think if you're just taking surveys, it's okay? Because I understand what you're saying. Now that I'm doing a PhD, mm. the ethics yeah. the ethics process, I mean, I can't even get started without ethics approval. I mean, no. and it, it took me, no. my, my research was delayed months and months and months just because mm -hmm. the ethics committee kept giving me notes and I, I couldn't even start my latest project. But my latest project is much more involved with heartbeat and, and stuff like that. If you're just collecting mm -hmm. surveys and you're not videotaping or recording, is, is that okay for someone who's maybe a part-time lecturer on, on their way up? I, I see no problem with that. Um, if it's just a simple survey, if it's anonymous, um, if the students have been informed it's for your research purposes and they agree, um, then uh, I don't see that there's a huge problem. As long, of course, the institution might be um, on your back if your research survey is taking up a lot of class time mm. because it, this is the student's learning time and right. not your research time. So you have to be discreet and tread sensibly, I would say. But um, one of my extra jobs is as a Birmingham University, UK, um, MA in TESOL and in applied linguistics. I'm one of the distance tutors. I've been doing this for over 20 years. And um, yeah, those students are required to carry out some kind of in-class studies and um, for their uh, module work and write essays about their findings. And um, yeah, so they have to check with their institutions whether they can do this or not get permission. So as their tutor, I'm constantly saying, have you checked that you can do this and make sure this is okay with your institution? Right. So that's sort of the rule yeah. of thumb. You should probably it, always yes. check with, especially, I think like, so. like you said, um, even if you're only collecting surveys, <laughs> but you're taking up, you know, precious class time, it's always, it's yes. always best to sort of get approval just so the, the institution knows what you're doing. Absolutely. Because yeah, when yeah. I first when I first heard about action research, like you said in the beginning, why isn't everyone doing this? This is great. And mm. then you, you then you think, wow, am I allowed to do this? Those, those two those two thoughts came at me at once. I remember yes. when I was hearing about mm. it. It is exciting yeah. because you can you can you know do research on your own practices. And Absolutely. Can, which is which is great. It, it's almost you're you're doing an audit on yourself. Yes. Yes. Hmm. 
which is what this paper is all about. So before we get into the paper, I'd like to get a little bit of your background. I was just looking at your bio on LinkedIn. It's have you have you been? Oh, at, I don't put very much on those. <laughs> have you been? But have you been at Kyoto? I, yeah, I'm so, afraid I I really dislike social media. Um, I put up the minimum on things like LinkedIn and Facebook, um, just so that people know who I am. But um, and the, yes, the bare minimum. So I don't fill in other stuff. Yes. Well, as, as far as your, your timeline, you <clears throat> you worked in Portugal, China, Brazil. Yeah. You mm. worked for the British Council. And then yeah. for the for the most of your career, you've been working at Kyoto Sangyo University. Yes, since I came to Japan. Yes, I worked for the British Council three years as a full-time teacher and then a year as a part-time teacher, and when I was making the shift into university teaching, yeah. So what, what, what were your thoughts on Portugal, China, and Brazil? Right. Well, I was, um, my major at university was foreign languages. I did French and German, mm-hmm. and um, I really very quickly developed a taste for living overseas and teaching English. So part of my French degree, I spent a a school year in a high school in France as a English language assistant. And um, I just felt it very stimulating to be living in a foreign country, learning the language and culture and teaching my own language. Um, So after graduation, I found my first teaching job in Portugal in a small language school that didn't require any teaching qualifications. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so um, it was very helpful to get my foot in that door and on the first rung of the ladder um, without any, um, well, without very much teaching experience, just my year in France. Um, But it was a real eye-opener because when I went to France, I could speak French. but when I went to Portugal, I didn't speak a word. And so I remember so clearly that first lesson when I was in a classroom full of Portuguese, very low level, who didn't speak very much English at all, and me, who spoke no Portuguese. And yet we we managed to communicate. It was challenging, but fun. Yeah. And um, in the second year I was in Portugal, I was very lucky to discover that the British Council in Lisbon, I was outside Lisbon um, in a small fishing port called Stubal. But it was about an hour by bus to Lisbon. And so the British Council was holding some teacher training course. And I joined that and I realized, wow, I have so much to learn. And um, so after two years, I was able to do um, a postgraduate diploma in ESL at Leeds University. And that really set me up with teacher training. Yeah. So Portugal was a great eye-opening first real teaching experience. So did you acquire some Portuguese before before you went to Brazil? Yes. So what was really fun was that um, one of the teachers in this language school had been in Portugal for some years and all of her friends were Portuguese and had no interest whatsoever in speaking English. And so they were brilliant Portuguese teachers. Um, So the first evening, um, she was busy doing something else. And I met up with these two young men. Um, One was a painter and one was a fisherman. And um, they had all the goodwill in the world. And we met up in a cafe. And so the first Portuguese words I learned were sinzeiro, ashtray, but I don't smoke, <laughs> salt and pepper, beer, <laughs> coffee. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so they were great teachers. And I just hung out with them. And also um, reading comic books, especially Tintin or Tantan mm-hmm. um, in Portuguese, because I could see the pictures and work out what was going on. But the written, the spoken language was written down. Um, But also Portuguese is a Latin language, so speaking French and having studied Latin were a big help. I could work out the grammar. Uh, I did take some lessons. Um, Another friend, um, an intellectual friend of this teacher, um, who was a university teacher, um, gave me some really good Portuguese grammar lessons. And uh, and I was off, yeah. 
So just basically hanging out with Portuguese speakers who didn't want to speak English was the best way. So at this at this time, did you have an idea what your career might be or were you excited to sort of travel and... Those years in Portugal, uh, I was excited. I was just enjoying traveling and um, it was a well-paid job and I got plenty of holidays and... Um, I was very friendly with another of the teachers who had grown up part of her childhood in Morocco. And so we spent a lovely three weeks in Morocco together with her family and friends. And then she was a great travel companion. We hitchhiked around Portugal together. Um, This was back in the 1970s, and it was pretty safe. And we went to very remote areas. And... um, yeah, she spoke more fluent Portuguese than me because she was she'd been in Portugal much longer than me. But um, mine was coming along by then. Yeah. How did you end up in Brazil? Ah, so after, I guess that was after China, though. Sorry, it was up. Yes, yes. So after I had my diploma, teaching diploma, I got a job with. Um, um, with the British government, we were called volunteers, voluntary service overseas. It was like the American Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. And this, they sent six of us. We were the six first people they sent into China. So this was 1981. Wow. When China was still a closed communist state, everyone was wearing gray or green or dark blue suits. And there were virtually no motorized vehicles. And... Um, Everything was rationed with coupons. And so, yes, um, it it was a real, really interesting experience. And um, I spent a year there. Um, It was going to be two years, but VSO, this organization, and our institution hadn't really worked out the rules properly. And I was being used not as they expected to be teaching the up-and-coming undergraduates who would be using English in the future, I was being used as a perk to say thank you to the older professors for all of the year's service they had given to the to the party. And they were absolutely delightful people, and we had lovely time together. But only two of them, I think, ever used English um, outside our classroom for a bona fide reason. And <laughs> so um, VSO wouldn't budge and the university where I was teaching wouldn't budge. And so I decided this is just not right. Um, I didn't want to spend another year as a perk and so decided to to leave. Have you um, been back to China since then? Um, I went back last year oh. uh, in December, just before everything closed down. And oh, Boy, was that an eye-opener. I mean, I've been through China um, to change airplanes, and I've seen China on TV plenty, so I was aware that huge changes had taken place. But it was really quite an eye-opener, yeah. So I didn't go back to the same area. I was right down in the south of China when I went last year. But I could just tell, oh, yeah. Yeah, they've almost caught up with Japan in terms of the sophistication of the technology and, um, yeah, especially on the university campus that I was um, at. Yeah, certainly they're on a par with Japan in terms of technology. Whereas when I was in China, there were two TV sets on the whole university campus. Um, One was in the president's home and the other one was locked in a wooden cupboard in my classroom. And it was ceremoniously unlocked once a week for us to watch this BBC program for teaching English. <laughs> and so I would what? sit there with my students <laughs> and watch it. <laughs> but then there was another occasion when it was ceremoniously unlocked. Um, um, if you're British, then you'll appreciate this story. Um, in early 1982, a couple of my students knocked on my door rather tentatively and said do you know your country's gone to war I said what (laughs) I couldn't believe my ears I said what are you talking about who are they at war with and they said it in the Falkland Islands and so like most British people I assumed the Falkland Islands were off the coast of Scotland somewhere I had no idea that these 
islands existed in the middle of the Atlantic off the coast of Argentina. And I'd never heard of them before. And of course, it was the the Falkland Island War they were talking about. And um, the British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, had dispatched her warships down to the South Atlantic Ocean. And um, so I was allowed to watch the BBC News because I couldn't believe them. But then they showed me on the news this was really happening. Yeah. So, I mean, these days the Chinese are so clued in with technology. Everybody is using phones all the time. And um, uh, and even when I visited this university's media centre, they have all of the latest um, Western films and they are able to access stuff um, through the internet, a really wide range of stuff, considering Google is not allowed. They have their ways and means of getting around it. Yeah, I heard recently China's pushing for a new internet protocol. Yes. That they're creating. Yes, yes, yes. They want to control things a bit more, I think. Yeah. But young people there are very tuned in hmm. to what's going on in the world. And then yeah. from China, you went to Brazil. Brazil, yes, yeah. And how, how was that? Had you forgotten your Portuguese by then? No, not at all. <laughs> um, there was an interlude. I was in London for a few months. And uh, during that time, I was working for an agency. And um, they would send me to teach business English to business people. And I had this delightful group of students from Angola. Hmm. Of course, Angola is a Portuguese-speaking country. And we had such fun. And so I was able to keep up my Portuguese. Wow. Yeah. Mm. And then Brazil, Brazil. When, when in this time period did you get your master's? Okay. So I was in Brazil for about five years altogether and not thinking about getting a master's very much at all at that point because I had a fabulous job and I was able to travel all around South and Central America with my long holidays and um, with the my earnings because it was a very well-paid job if you're living in South America. But I did come to the point where I realized that I wasn't going to be promoted in that job um, unless I had a master's degree. And so I had to sort of think seriously about saving some hard currency. And um, several things pointed me to come to Japan. Um, first of all, there are many Japanese in Brazil, and some of my most interesting and charming and certainly most hardworking students were <laughs> of Japanese descent. Mm. And... Um, also, I mean, yeah, I'd spent this year in China and I'd really enjoyed being in Asia and I was curious to visit Japan and compare Japan with China. And number three was one of my colleagues, a British colleague in Brazil, had got a job at Kyoto British Council and he wrote to me to say he, th he thought I would really like it here, although Japan is so different from Brazil, and they need another teacher, was I would I consider applying? So I thought, well, Japan had been enjoying its bubble economy during the 80s when I was in Brazil. Mm -hmm. I knew the currency was very strong. So it was a mixture of curiosity and um, financial motivation. Plus, I looked up um, about Kyoto and found out a little bit about where it was and what it was. And, um, and I applied and luckily I got the job. And so it was time to move on. Um, it was with tremendous sadness that I left Brazil, and I still feel nostalgic for it, even though Japan, Japan's been my home for over 30 years now. Yeah, but uh, I managed to make the break. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I haven't really looked back. So you did your master's when you were in Japan? Yes, um, I did it at Birmingham University in the UK. And at that time... We had the option of doing it as a sandwich course. Now, what that meant was that I spent um, an autumn semester, the first semester, no, autumn term, because it's three terms, the autumn term um, in Birmingham full time as a student. Um, but I was able to keep my job at the British Council. And then I came back for a year and I worked on my dissertation project.
and did my, all of the work for my dissertation during that year. And then I went back the following year for the winter term. And so I was there from January through to March. And um, and so I actually did it with two different cohorts of students, um, which was doubly interesting. Um, but I did it when I was on campus, it was full time. And then I wrote up my dissertation and um, then I had it like uh, two years Two and a half years later, I would I had my MA. And then, these days, yeah, these days you can do it fully online if you want. Mm. And then you 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 also have a PhD in music, which is great. I, my my undergraduate is actually in music. For oh, a long right. time, I was pursuing music. How did you end up getting a PhD in music? Haha. <laughs> well, when I started teaching at the university full time, no, actually part time, I was hired to teach part time. Um, I think they were trying me out. Um, they wanted a British person to teach British culture. Um, so whatever that was. OK, so <laughs> <laughs> just sit and watch just, the BBC, right? Let's unlock yeah, the TV and yeah. watch the BBC together. So, um, I mean, I'd never done culture studies in my life. Um, I was a language major and I'd spent by this time a good portion of my years um, living outside the UK. Um, I didn't feel I was particularly qualified as an expert <laughs> in British culture. So I sort of cast around for what aspects of British culture can I teach? And so um, I went for things like... Um, yeah, culture with a small C. Um, you know, popular music, um, film, um, media in general, um, a little bit of social studies, social issues thrown in. So it was a bit of a, a mixed bag. But I was very aware that I needed to deepen my understanding in one of the fields, um, especially because I was also teaching seminar classes, which was supposed to be on my speciality. And I was labeled as a culture person. I couldn't teach um, linguistics or language because other teachers were doing that and I was supposed to be teaching culture. So um, I was teaching more and more media studies and finding that the students related a great, very, very strongly to music and popular music. And I've always enjoyed music. And um, what I found was at that time, so this, we're looking now at the 19. 90s and um, the early 2000s and the internet was spreading and of course the genre of music video was really getting into its stride and us, the students were watching music videos as a way into enjoying English and I was quite surprised by the extent of their familiarity with western popular music in many cases so I decided to focus on Japanese young people's consumption of English medium music, and especially through music video. And so um, I applied to Goldsmiths College in London because it's one of the leading uh, universities for um, media studies and music. And um, I was accepted by the media studies department and um, given a supervisor, but before I could begin my PhD, she was sent on sabbatical or she took sabbatical so she wouldn't be around to supervise me. And so they asked me to find someone else. And I was very lucky that a professor in the music department whose work on music video I had read and loved and who had been one of my guiding lights um, accepted me as a PhD student. And so I actually shifted into the music department and so it was really audience research studies. Um, it wasn't music per se. Um, I wasn't um, studying the music in any great depth. I was studying the students' responses to English language music. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's, well that kind of leads nicely into the article. Which... Well, yes, because yeah, here I am teaching about yes, <laughs> popular music. <laughs> Yeah. And again, the, the article is Making a Lecture Course Student-Centered Steps and Issues. One thing that mm. I liked right away is any time an article lists some sort of self-dissatisfaction or 
Any anything that gives the caveat that maybe this didn't go my way. I did an interview with Simon Humphreys, and he was talking about how his project didn't go his way. Anything that seems to be candid and honest, I, I it really catches my eye. I love I love papers like that. There's so many papers that seem so perfect. This went exactly how I planned, and my hypothesis and all this. So you have a you have a line here. Um, the purpose of this paper is to describe the course content delivery and evaluation system from 2014 to 2016, and to identify reasons for my dissatisfaction with outcomes. So you 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 hooked me there. I love that. Yeah. I wish people I wish people did that more. Um, yes. Like, yes. Let's yes, learn because... from Let's learn from our mistakes together. Yeah, and. Quite honestly, any research project that you do is not going to go perfectly. And um, yes, and there's a very great danger of trying of actually. I don't know how consciously people do this, but sometimes maybe it's conscious. Sometimes, very often, it's not conscious. But sort of interpreting the data in mm -hmm. a way that matches the way they wish it to be interpreted. Right. Um, I think we've got to take a very objective look at what we come come up with and and be honest otherwise your research is not worth anything yeah, so I, I think i've learned that through qualitative research we have to be reflective and very honest and also in a, a very a good qualitative research project we have to analyze what we didn't find and why we didn't find it and what we didn't do right and why it wasn't right and why our data may not be representing what we would like it to be. Yes, yeah, so we have to be very self-critical. In a previous interview with um, one of my advisors, actually, I asked her this question. I said, why do so many researchers do that sort of thing where they, they really try to latch on and, and make the data you know, move to their hypothesis? And, and she said, well, maybe it's the people get sort of drawn to their own opinion and yeah. they get instead where she looks at like i'm drawn to science like i it doesn't mm -hmm. matter my opinion i'm a, i'm about science and mm. and some people maybe it's like an ego thing where they're, they're really drawn to their own idea mm. and, and and that sort of give you know blinds them or, or creates a bias where yeah. if you're really going to do real research you have to be drawn to the science and then you have to almost remove yourself from the equation which well, is, yes, i guess I mean, it's hard to do yeah, in science, um, the whole object of your experimentation is to disprove your hypothesis. <laughs> in in a pure science, in pure science terms, so you're busy. You should be busy trying to prove that you're wrong. Um, but uh, yes, there there's a very great danger of um, feeling so emotionally invested. Right. In your own idea that you're not willing to let go and admit that it's possibly not right. Well, yeah. this this course is centered on the Beatles. Yeah. And there, there's a few things that I'm interested to talk with you about because this came up in the paper. One, one of the things was how you designed the course the, the first time and when you made changes to make it more student-centered was, was the whole concept of homework. We need, yes. We need to assign homework to create student agency responsibility also you know for the the course curriculum for the grading um for the attendance records all these things yes. and it, it's one and of those because Moncashaw requires us to do so it's spelt out by and, it, <laughs> yeah. and, and we we want to in, incorporate the homework so it leads into the next lecture also Absolutely. maybe it, it can review the previous lecture mm. it's something that gives structure to the course Yes. Uh, it's a hard thing to get university Japanese college students to do. Um, yes, because um, because so few um, so few other teachers um, will explain to students that the lesson is going to be based on the contents of the homework. Um, homework is given as a sort of afterthought, <laughs> um, just a requirement or busy work. Um, unless you make the homework integral to the following lesson, the students won't see any reason to do it or to do it with any care or attention. And I'm as guilty of that as other teachers. Um, but if you're going to teach in a student-centered way, you have to try and structure it so that you are giving the students a real purpose for the homework that okay. they can understand. 
Can you give a little bit of a overview of the class? Was this, this is an elective course that anywhere from Ichinensei to Yonensei can take? Uh, okay, so this is um, an elective class, and it's a two-credit two course, and they can take it from their third semester, so the beginning of their second year. And um, the most of the students who take it each year are second-year students, and um, there are third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh year students taking it as well. Um, and it's a 90-minute class once a week. So, I mean, mm. I'm kind of skipping to the oh, end. Oh, and the other big oh, thing okay. is, yeah, it's English medium. So it's taught in English. So I skipped to the, to the end of the paper. Um, okay. I, I mean, I read the whole thing, but I kind of want to, I might jump around a bit because I am inter mm -hmm. really interested in this homework. And one okay. of the thing, one of the comments that was given to you, one of the feedback is something that I have found too, where students that don't do their homework have a detriment on those that do. Yeah. And, and there was, there was a comment here, teacher insisted to do homework again and again. However, many students seem not to, it was sad because I couldn't discuss contents of homework actively in the class. I think it was not the teacher's fault. Another comment was that particularly third and fourth years did not do the homework. So mm. it was difficult for, I find the same thing, you know, first years they come in and they're very excited. Um, mm. I don't have them grouped in the same class. So this might've been doubly as difficult. I find as they progress in the university, they get influenced by the older students and then they, oh, they realize, oh, I can be lazy. I don't need to do homework. You actually had second, third and fourth years in the same class. Yes. How did you, how did you manage that? Um, when it came to discussion and, and these third and fourth years weren't, were you cognizant of that? And you were trying to split the groups up? That must, that just seems very difficult to handle in the beginning of I a class. Was, um, yeah, I was intensely aware of this. Um, in 2018, 2019, um, <clears throat> I was intensely aware of this in the lessons because um, the older students were less frequent in attendance. Um, we have an attendance rule. They have to attend at least 10 of the 15 classes. And the older students who are, uh, in quotation marks, older and wiser, know that they can skip up, up to five classes and still possibly scrape the credits. Um, and they don't see any reason why they need to do the homework unless it's going to be graded and part of their overall grade. And so they were just skiving. They were just not putting in the work and um, letting the other students do it for them. And although I spoke to them about this, um, it clearly it wasn't having an effect. Um, yes, um, and the... The second year students who are doing a lecture course like this, this is the spring semester of their second year. It's the first of their lecture courses that they've taken. They were very keen and also bitterly disappointed by the um, attitudes of their seniors who are supposed to be the role models. But sadly, the older students had got into this sort of attitude that you just do the minimum um, to pass the course and get the credits. And... They weren't really there to learn anything new. Um, not all of them, but there were these um, rather bad examples that were spoiling it for their groups. And as I said in the conclusion, um, or towards the end of the article, one of the actions that I was planning to take this semester, um, if we hadn't been teaching online, um, was to be very careful about who I was placing in each group and only one third or fourth year student in each group so that if they were a bad apple, they wouldn't uh, <laughs> you know, upset everything for everyone. Um, <clears throat> and I would also going to talk to them individually um, at, in the first weeks of the course to explain, you know, this is what it's like in this class. Maybe you don't do the same or need to do the same in another class. But for this class, I want you to respect these parameters. The, the reason why I wanted to talk about homework, because I, I think mm. it, it affects everything that you're trying to accomplish. Because you're, you're, you're trying to move from teacher center to student center, uh, centered learning. And you, and you, you list a few uh, on, on page, what page is this? I think 20 on the, on the, on the printout. Mm -hmm. um, so 
recognize cognitive resource limitations. Okay, that's fine. Anybody can do that. Split into 15 to 30 minute segments. Any teacher can do that. Help students yeah. fall in love with the subject matter. You're dealing with the Beatles, which is easily to fall easy to fall in love with. Um, use narratives. Number four, mm-hmm. that's, you know, storytelling. That's great. But, you know, establish a sense of community. You talk about active learning as cooperative learning. The whole mm. reason you're, you're creating this, you know, this homework style is to get people to cooperate and feed off each other and work as a team. And then if you're faced with that homework check in the beginning of class where let's, you know, collaborate and build on this and you're immediately hit with a wall, it really yes. stops. It really stops the whole student centered movement uh, in, yes. its tra- in its tracks. How, how do yes. you how do you deal with it? Right. So um, what I would do, because um, when you've got a big lecture class like this, so um, there are like 30 to 40 students each week in that class. And um, I would move students around in class. So someone who was supposed to be in group two, I they were a good student and group five was missing several and had a, a student who clearly hadn't done the homework preparation. Then I would politely move the good student from group two to group five and say, do you mind just for this lesson? And um, they were very amenable to doing that. And um, yeah, so think on my feet, work on my feet, try to balance the groups up um, in real time uh, so that um, they could successfully work on their poster or their presentation or whatever it was that they were producing for that, that lesson. I, I like what you I like I like the changes you made. I, I thought actually the initial structure of the class I think could work in a Western style. Oh, um, definitely. And yes. You, and then you um, changed then you changed it to where okay you're going to do a presentation and then base the 700 word essay on that. And I think that works great too. Yes, uh, because yeah. Western students expect that when the teacher is lecturing to them that they will be taking notes and that they will be doing their own following up research and reading. They will probably have a seminar at some point or a tutorial based on the contents of that lecture, and they will be writing an essay on it um, because the whole structure of Western-style university education is very different, and they have the students have different expectations. Where in Japanese university class like this, um, this was one class on a Thursday morning. Um, this class was first period on Thursday morning, and they probably had another four classes that day. Um, so it's very different. And so their attitudes towards, you know, a lecture in a class is um, you just sit through it. <laughs> and um, it's you don't do anything with it. You just sit through it. Um, whereas it's very, very different, um, I think, from a Western-style university uh, situation. So how did, how did you find, I, I'm sure you found positive feedback when you move from straight essay to build the essay off your presentation, because they're going to be working towards the essay, you know, explicitly or implicitly by working on the presentation, working together. Mm. Um, how did you, how did you find, did you find the students that weren't active in homework remain sort of the same with the end of res- end result or you know at least at least being in the groups working toward a presentation it helped there what was it the essay did. was the essay um, like a four author thing or yeah. everyone had to everyone had to produce their own individual essay that's right yes so um yes so a lot of the students produced their best work all semester in that essay <laughs> um yeah so it was very clear in the group presentations that um, not all of the students in each group have been pulling their weight to the same extent. Right. And it was very apparent in the way they delivered it. And you could just see from the body language um, as they were standing in front of the class and taking their turns to say their piece, um, how well rehearsed they were and who was in charge and who looked confident and who didn't. So we all knew. Um, and then it was kind of a second chance for those students who knew they hadn't done enough for the presentation to just put in that extra bit of work and try to get themselves a decent passing grade. Um, But also, as I mentioned in the article, I'm also very aware that we do have a number of students who just don't want to stand in front of a class and speak, and especially speak in English because this was all English medium. 
And so writing the essay was giving those students a chance to shine in um, through a different medium. I think it's uh, going back to culture. There's mm. a teacher I know. He, he says you can't separate. What did he say? You, you can't separate the teacher from culture in some ways. Mm. So if you're a Canadian teacher, you're, you're, you know, implicitly or explicitly going to give Canadian culture. If you're a British teacher, you're going to produce British culture in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with an American style. So for me, teaching this style class would be completely, even if I went exactly what you did step by step, it mm. still would be different with mm. me maybe giving giving some disapproving glances at the students who didn't care, maybe me showing, you know, sighing <laughs> loudly at someone who doesn't, me being kind of upset possibly that they're not, you know, taking advantage of this really cool class where mm-hmm. you're, you know, you have a PhD in music and, and you're, this is a great fun, you're trying to create this great class. People are falling asleep when they're listening to the the Beatles or, their, <laughs> or the music videos. You, I've, I've met you in person a few times. You seem very calm, relaxed, happy. I, I get the impression that, you know, the students that don't do their homework don't really have too much of a negative effect on you. Oh, you How? haven't seen me in teacher okay. mode. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a withering look and a sarcastic tone. And um, and well, I write good. and I write comments on their work. Yes, I'm a great believer in writing personal comments to students and uh, warning them and pulling them out at the end of the class or aside during class to tell them that you're not passing this class. You've got to do more than this. You're letting your group down. Yeah. No, I, um, yeah, there is this, my teacher, when I'm in teacher mode, <laughs> I can be pretty strict. Is that, is that a drain on your energy? How do you, how do you balance that? We talk about mm-hmm. the cognitive load with students, but yeah, I find that's something that drains my cognitive load as a teacher, just the emotional uh, just dealing with that sort of, you know, yes. motivating people. It feels like it's constantly a minus. It's rarely you'll get that that really motivated student that gives you the energy that you might get in in other in other countries. Well, it swings and roundabouts, isn't it? Yes. So we've got the ones that drain us, but we've got the ones that help us to bounce right back. And and probably you are very aware as a teacher that when you go into any class, but especially if it's a large class, the adrenaline um, keeps you <laughs> very active and very alert and full of energy. Um, it's after the class is finished that you begin to feel, uh, when you come down, um, then you feel a bit more drained. Um, yeah, generally speaking, my adrenaline is up during the 90 minutes of class time and then I'm glad that I don't have a class immediately after that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is this is a great project. I, you know, it's funny because my passion is music. I love music, and I try to introduce music into my lessons a few times throughout my English teaching career. Mm. And it, I just, I stop doing it just because I like it too much, mm-hmm. and I just cannot stand someone not appreciating it, appreciating it. So mm-hmm. in some ways I've protected myself. I do not, I try not to introduce something in class that I'm extremely passionate about, which mm-hmm. is something that you actually recommended teachers to do, which is the, <laughs> what did you call it? The uh, emotional contagion. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Yeah. I actually try to avoid that because mm. when I don't get the contagion, it's such a drag. I feel so yeah. depressed after. So I actually, I actually try not to do that. As, mm-hmm. Which is kind of strange because you you recommend people should, should, de- do that, should do that. Should do you're depriving yourself because <laughs> you will get and I do get every year a few students who by the end of the semester they're still not particularly into the Beatles and they're still asking me why don't you teach us about some other groups and this year for the first time I can tell them because my colleague has retired and I now teach the full semester um, you're going to hear about a whole load of other groups from the English speaking world in the full semester um, but there are those students who really get into the Beatles and we have fantastic conversations about the music that they love and and I love asking them which do you think are Amanda's favorite tracks on this album? And it really gets them thinking. And we have some fascinating discussions about this. 
And, um, of course, I keep changing my mind about which are my favorites, but uh, they don't know that. Uh, but um, I recommend um, sharing something that you find um, really exciting. And you'll be surprised because some students will really get into it. Um, what set me off on this whole track of investigating students' interest in Western music was I was just sort of, as a British expression, gobsmacked by how much some of the students knew about Western music. Um, I started this when it was the Backstreet Boys who were you know, really, really popular and who were responsible for a lot of students falling in love with English. Mm. Um, Lady Gaga <laughs> was responsible for a lot of students really getting into English. And uh, we have Taylor Swift and Katy Perry to thank a great deal. So um, these were all, um, all artists that were very popular. But you'll find when you talk to students about popular music now, Ed Sheeran, he's really popular mm. and they know his music because it's played a lot in Japan. And I can really share their love, Adele. Um, I really share their love. And um, yeah, so playing music and using music in lessons, um, it really has a, a wonderful emotional kind of um, input into the lesson. And I use music videos when we're teaching in class. Um, I have a music video playing at the beginning of a lesson just to get the students into a certain frame of mind and get them into a mood, lift their spirits if it's a rainy day, help them to calm down if they seem to be overexcited. Um, yeah. So I just, I, I, I use it. I utilize it to manipulate um, the emotional climate of the lesson. Well, that's great. It's great yeah. you're doing that. I maybe one day I'll return to it. I'm not doing a good enough job. I've almost adapted the mentality of the students. Okay, you're not into this, so I'm not going to produce anything that I think is exceptional because you're just gonna you're just gonna drag me down, which is probably isn't well, the right I think attitude. One of the problem, <laughs> well, I think one of the problems these days that we have the internet and we have um, all of these algorithms that determine what the algorithm, algorithms think that we like. And then we get presented with more and more of the same thing and it takes us down rabbit holes. And so I think this happens to our students. And I think it's really good for them to be snapped out of this um, listening to the same kind, same genre, same kind of music that the algorithms are leading them into, um, show them, uh, present them with something new and fresh and different. Um, I teach another course about music, which is how to analyze music videos. And of course, we look at quite a lot of music videos from the 1980s, the age of MTV, when so much music video was being produced. And it's surprising. I'm surprised every time by their responses, how enthusiastic they are. They really get into these 1980s groups, um, which are their parents' generation. <laughs> so, And then they find that they can talk to their parents about music that both their parents and they really like. And, um, yeah, it gives them something else to talk to their parents about. And then the Beatles, they can talk to their grandparents about the Beatles and other groups from the 1960s. So I think we're providing them with a much wider, deeper, chronologically longer uh, culture and experience if we do introduce them to the things that we love from our youth. Yeah, you're you're right. I I'm just mm -hmm. thinking of a few examples where I would get the cold sweats in class when I would oh, yes? when I'd play a movie that I thought was really funny, and I'd mm -hmm. be playing the movie and I'd try to just stay neutral, right? But then there'd be a joke and I would just start laughing, and right. I just look and and it wasn't that they weren't into it. It wasn't that they were really into it. It was just they were staring at it like it was a, an exhibition at a museum. They were just looking, and I guess they were absorbing it, right? But that well, feeling I mean, comedy, of me, comedy yeah. is the most difficult to, right. the, to translate culturally. Um, if it's visual comedy, you don't have a problem. But um, if there's a lot of cultural nuance, right. it'll go over their heads. The same way that so much of Japanese TV and Japanese movies go over my head. Um, 
Yes. Yeah, so I actually have another another class, a lecture class, which I base on British movies. Um, it's called Introduction to British Culture, and well, we watch fun. five different different British movies each semester, which deal with different social and cultural issues. And um, and these are movies that I personally think are are good movies. And I'm I think maybe I've just got hardened to the fact that not every student's going to enjoy every movie, mm. but some of them are going to really get into some of the movies. And and then later, a year or two later, I get them quoting things back at me in another class <laughs> from wow. movies that they've seen. So a lot of the students who take my lecture classes go on to take my seminar and the seminars on media studies. And so, um, yes, they're giving me great examples from the films that they've watched in my course when we were looking at just this last homework. I just checked, yes, that um, they were remembering. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I would say be fearless. Um, yeah, accept that not everything is everyone's cup of tea, but our students... Um, they are living on a diet of manga and anime. Mm. And I think that we have a cultural duty to open their eyes to uh, a slightly broader cultural, what should we say, um, smorgasbord. <laughs> um, yeah, offer them a slightly wider perspective on the world. Well, you're you're a stronger person than me, but I hope hopefully this will motivate <laughs> Yeah, you're right. I need to be courageous. I need to try to you try need that to, emotional contagion. I like that. Yeah, I like that yes, yes. You need to build up a tougher emotional, um, should we say, emotional skin around your own personal, private emotional. The problem is they have a very strong. They have a very strong apathy contagion. So I need to figure. Out. <laughs> 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 and there's thirty to one, right? <laughs> right yes yeah yeah but i i'm pretty sure that they won't all be apathetic yeah, yeah. that's true that's yes true. yeah so i mean for example um i use this just this semester i've been having to do adapt this to online which is an absolute nightmare because i can't show them the films online it's against all copyright and um uh, the copyright encoding on DVDs has made sure that you can't stream them through a platform like Zoom. Um, so we're having to make do with what clips I can find on YouTube. But a film like Four Weddings and a Funeral, some of the – I don't know if you're familiar with that. I think I've seen it. Yeah. Um, it's early 1990s, and so it's it's made before most of the students in the class were ever born. Um, but a lot of it is still relevant and the students really relate to it and they understand the humor in it because the humor is very visual. Um, the full first wedding, the best man forgets the wedding rings and has to borrow a couple in an emergency from his flatmate who has, should we say, a very original, um, fashion sense and, uh, <laughs> And the two rings for the bride and the groom are totally unsuitable as wedding rings, but the students get it. Yeah, they can see what is happening because so much of that is done through mime. What's going on during the wedding ceremony when he's trying to get these wedding rings and then presents them and then the priest looks at them and the startled expression on the priest's face said it all, even before the close-up of the rings being put on the fingers <laughs> proves uh, what you suspected, what was going to happen yeah so the students can get it yeah but there's an awful lot that they miss but you just have to kind of accept that yeah they're not going to understand everything but the bit that they get that's a plus okay well the article is making yeah. a lecture course student centered steps and issues thank you so much for coming on lost in citations and well, thank uh, good you. luck with the rest of the term well, thank you. It's been an awful lot of fun answering your questions. And I hope that that our listeners will have um, got some ideas and at least maybe got some courage to try something new. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email, lostincitations at gmail.com. Please like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash lostincitations. 
It also helps greatly if you share the show on your social media platform of choice. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us a five-star rating and favorable review on iTunes. This will help us tremendously. One final thing, and maybe most important, if you enjoy listening to the show, please tell a friend or colleague. People often talk about their favorite podcasts, so let people know that you're listening. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week.